Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, November 14th, 2016, the America You Have Got to Be Kidding Me edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. Donald Trump is the President-elect of the United States. After the election there last Tuesday, we thought we simply couldn't let that pass without taking to the pod earlier than originally scheduled to discuss it. I'm joined by my usual co-host, Scott Lucas, uh, who is Professor of International Politics, Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview, and man who has a sign on his office door saying, on TV, do not knock. How are you doing, Scott? (laughs) I'm doing okay, despite the uh, circumstances. I guess crawling through the wreckage is the best description at this point. Also by Mark Goodwin, who's a lecturer in British politics, which is no small asset when dealing with unexpected voting results that presage a new dawn of right-wing populism. How are you doing, Mark? How am I doing? Uh, I'm not ready to laugh about it yet, really that way. We've been talking our way therapeutically around the radio booths, TV studios and Facebook walls of the country. Uh, We are now with you in the pod to try and get our thoughts out there, uh, and to some extent there's still thoughts that are, that are forming and probably still will be for some time. First, the bare facts of, of the result that we're dealing with here. Uh, Donald Trump won the election with 290 electoral college votes so far. Uh, I think Michigan is still unconfirmed, formally speaking, although it is a state in which he's in front, so his, his lead may go up. He lost the popular vote by hundreds of thousands, which is still going up, I gather, as uh, late votes get counted. But that is not how the system works. He will be the president according to the electoral system. Most attention in the aftermath has fallen on Hillary Clinton's defeat in a number of economically challenged Midwestern and Mid-Atlantic states, specifically Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, in addition to the expected swing states of Ohio, Florida, and North Carolina. So, how big a shock was this result? Why did it happen? What will happen now? And what does this mean for Democrats as they think ahead about future contests, that is, hoping that there are future contests? Um, Let's start with that first one, shall we? Um, I, among many other people, Uh, said before this voting result took place that the only rational prediction on the evidence that we had was that in likelihood Hillary Clinton was going to be the winner. It turns out that Hillary Clinton is not the winner. Uh, How shocked were you? How right are those who are shocked to be shocked? Was this a shock, Scott? Do you want to kick us off with that? No, it was possible. I mean, I know that you said this despite saying... This was the only rational outcome. You said it is possible that Trump could still win. Well, I, it, it, it was the only rational outcome, 100%. It was the rational prediction yeah, on a slightly smaller but, percentage. But the irrational is possible. And mm-hmm. I said on the eve of the election, I thought she was a two-to-one favorite, which mm-hmm. leaves about a 30 to 35% chance that he could do it. Now, why is that as they do the postmortem? The first thing to realize is, is that the polls were very close in a number of states. They were within what's called the margin of error. So even if she was up, say, 3% in a Michigan, in a Pennsylvania, uh, in uh, North Carolina, Florida, Ohio, he could win it. It just so happens that the results fell in all of those key states. He won each of them. Uh, It was a tall order. If he had fallen in Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, Michigan... 
You might not have done it, but it is what it is in that sense. Now, what I'm interested in is in everybody then doing the navel gazing, which is, look, folks, don't reduce it to one explanation. One I saw is, okay, it's the, it's the white working class. Everybody, it's the white working class. The white working class has spoken, and the media loves this narrative, the idea that these people have never been focused on before, that no one noticed a farmer or noticed a laid-off factory worker, and all of a sudden here they were. The white working class vote, if you want to define it that way by income and so on, was in the low 50s for Trump, which is a majority, but it's not a huge majority. It just so happened that in certain states, that slim majority made the difference. So treat it as one factor. There is another factor, which I think is salient, although we may have to revisit this as the, the late votes come in, but Hillary Clinton's vote was down on Obama's vote in 2012. Trump's vote was not significantly up over the Republican vote, but her vote was down, which points to the fact that in certain areas, and Michigan was a state where this was being set on the night, voters did not turn out for. Whether these were African-American voters who felt disenchanted that, you know, the standard, oh, oh, yeah, 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 you talk about doing something for us, but you won't deliver. Whether it's because in some districts the youth vote was not motivated I mean, we have to have a look at that, whether it is that in some cases, again, that there were voters who might have been from the working class who didn't vote for Trump, but just simply said, I'm not turning out for Hillary. There is a third factor, though, which probably needs to be recognized, and that is, is that she won the popular vote, which does not make a difference in her becoming president. But what it shows is, is that in certain areas of the country, she piled up the vote and won big, and it just so happens that two of those states are New York and California, which plays into the idea that it's not a two Americas thing, but that obviously the message that she was putting forth versus the Trump message was playing well in different areas for reasons we can get into. That will probably be an ongoing situation. Let me leave you with one other thing. Just throw it out there. Uh, to be discussed, if you wish, which is um, 538.com, which I kind of like, was making great play of this, that of the 18 states with above average numbers of people who have advanced degrees, Clinton won 18. Of the other 32, she won three. So whether there is an argument here that education plays a difference in voting patterns, which is a dangerous area to get in on because people immediately say, oh, you know, you're being elitist, you're being discriminating, you don't have to have a college degree to be smart, well, whatever. Whether levels of education make a difference in terms of vote is something that may be irrelevant not only for this election but for ones to come. Mm. But, and, and I suppose if, if we're going we're gonna to say that, Maybe what we need to dwell on for a moment then is the fact that education uh, doesn't simply mean that, I mean, okay, the simplistic way of reading that is you become educated, that makes you better informed, more rational, you think thoughts of a superior quality, therefore you reason your way to the better outcome. Another way to look at it would be education is the primary signifier of class status within the United States today. So someone who is highly educated is more likely to uh, work in the kind of jobs that are doing well in the current economy, is more likely to have money, uh, is more likely to fit all sorts of other demographic characteristics that make them more likely to be sympathetic to the Democratic Party and to Hillary Clinton's agenda. So I suppose... 
education is a marker of a whole variety of different sure. things that divide the population that are that are um that go beyond simply the content of what they're learning in their education if you will mark you want you want to come in on this yeah i think that the uh, education point as well speaks to something that i think you know i am not a us politics expert there are certain parallels with britain and brexit up to a point but i'm going to make them whenever i can so um one of the things that strikes me as a, as a parallel is this idea that this is, uh, in some sense, an anti-elite um, movement or anti-elite phenomenon. But who are the elite and who are the elite constructed as? And education is a massive component of that. So when we talk about this, whether we're talking about Trump or whether we're talking about uh, Brexit as an anti-elite movement or an anti-elite uh, result, it's not really targeted at the economic elite. Okay, so I, I was following along the election, uh, as most of us were, uh, overnight. And it was constantly Michael Ashcroft and Aaron Banks piping up about this is a backlash against the establishment and the elite. Okay, that's billionaire, non-domiciled, Conservative Party donor, and incidentally, mm -hmm. the pollster, uh, Michael Ashcroft. And you just think, you know, mind your neck in. But it's... Not a backlash against an economic elite as such, it's a cultural elite. It's about a cultural elite, and that's why I think education is such a, a key part of that. It's, um, uh, you know, th the only way I think you can sensibly make sense of how the elite is understood, it's not, uh, or how Trump can be excluded from the elite, or mm. Nigel Farage can be outside the elite. Okay? It's because they're not seen as, as people who have all this cultural uh, baggage and cultural signifiers mm. that, that exclude them from yeah. real Brits, real Americans, right. as we were talking about last time. Yes, I mean, it, it's people who economically and to some extent culturally uh, are very much part of the elite who have spotted an opportunity in the political environment where there, there is a great deal of economic inequality and a great deal of cultural grievance. And they have managed uh, against what one might think would be expectation to associate themselves as the tribunes of this legitimate sentiment. So the, the sources of the feeling may well lie in legitimate grievances. Well, let's not get into whether they're legitimate. We'll come to that later. But genuine, uh, stark differences of social status and economic status. But those who are riding at the very front of the train as the political representatives of it are not themselves being plucked out as the most able of that group of disenfranchised people. They're mm. people from within the elite who've spotted the, 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 the moment. Let's pull the pin on the first grenade. Trump's a con man. He's snake oil man. Snake oil is what you give people when... They don't like their conditions, their suffering. And uh, in the 19th century, he went around and said, here, here's the snake oil, cure everything. He's doing it in the 21st century with people, and this is where education and economics come together. It's a question of opportunity. Uh, education usually reflects the fact that you have an opportunity. You can take advantage of an opportunity. Uh, with that opportunity, you can possibly change your job, get into a different area that you can get into a high-tech economy rather than be stuck in a declining manufacturing economy. Not rocket science. So here's a man from the elite of New York who has basically profited, probably millionaire but not billionaire Donald Trump, but it's profited from the carcasses of others. And he comes out with a snake oil for others. That means, I think, the logic here is, is that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Trump, but what in fact we're talking about is 
there are wider issues about America. You know, there, that this is a, a, a country in which there's a vast amount of wealth, but it is not evenly distributed in terms of opportunity and in terms of outcome for many, many people. And those people who do not receive the benefits of it, they'll go to the person that can offer them a better way, whether it's a Trump or whether it's someone else who's uh, promising salvation on a given day. I thought that was one of the things that was really interesting about this, that I think we've got used to the idea that leadership is crucially important and the candidate is crucially important. And I wonder whether there's a you know some argument here that the message and the messenger have been separated in the minds of quite a, or at least a significant number of voters. Because I think you, you know, your first question was, how much of a shock is this? I think you look structurally, demographically, sociologically, and, you know, I always tell the students all politics is ultimately sociology. You can understand where Trump comes from. OK, those drivers are present as they were present in Britain um, and are present in Britain. But I think the thing that's shocking about it is how can this man, who is such a horrible bastard, be the vehicle for it mm. and people not be dissuaded by the fact that he's the messenger? OK, the message cuts through and people I, I'm not. Well, we don't know, and I don't know, whether people look at Donald Trump or Nigel Farage and think, there's a decent bloke. Maybe they do. But I think that's the thing that's shocking to me, that it's, it's, it feels personal, you know, that somebody like that could be seen as a reasonable, uh, viable sort of um, vessel for this, for this message, and that his personal qualities, his complete lack of intellectual capacity to do the job, complete lack of preparedness is not enough to put people off. Yeah. Like I think I mean I I feel I feel like a lot a lot like that about it as well. That 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 I can imagine circumstances under which you know, in a normal election, right, uh in the United States, there is one of the parties that is going to secure the votes of lots of the people who have just voted for Donald Trump. And they're going to do it by signaling in a variety of ways, some of them policy, a lot more of them coded speech and so on and so forth, that they are broadly speaking in sympathy with something that if you like, think about it for too long resembles the idea that America is a white people's uh, country and that uh, it needs to stay that way, and that they have deep sympathy with the idea that this is a sentiment in the country of anyone who feels that way. But that's like at several degrees of remove from anything anyone would dream of articulating in an actual political debate. And the policy agenda that's attached to it, it's always understood, is going to be a ghostly pale shadow of the implementation of anything that that base of people would actually want red in tooth and claw if you, if, if you went for it. And the thing about Trump is that he has just come out and delivered directly onto the middle of the, the table uh, the bleeding raw red meat that this constituency that's been you know, uh, uh, enticed with pale shadows of its desired message a lot of the time into voting uh, has, 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 we now know, been looking for. So it, it, it's kind of shocking to realize that it was really only a kind of elite consensus that this was an inappropriate way of appealing for votes that kept this from being uh, tried before, not the fact that, as we would have liked to think, explicitly violating those norms would lead to a, to, to a political failure. And then added to that, the fact that he is completely and totally unfit for the job. 
as uh, on the level of his temperament, on the level of his level of policy information, on the level of his uh, capacity to staff and manage an administration with the complex and burdensome responsibilities that are coming. He is not up to this. Uh, And it would seem apparent when you talk to a lot of the people who voted for him, very few of them say, I love Donald Trump. What they do is they acknowledge all of the reasons, up to and including uh, his unfitness for office, that one might consider not voting for him. And then what they say is, but... I hate Hillary Clinton and all she represents even more than that. And therefore, I am prepared to throw this brick through this window, even knowing that uh, my chances of getting a newer, better window anytime soon are marginal at best. And that kind of, I think it's the recklessness of that that is, that, that is the shock in some ways. A, the idea that this sentiment can be appealed to so directly and still get you so many votes. And B, the idea that people who aren't even in the tank for all of Donald Trump's agenda just, just want to lash out with so little forethought about what it really means. That some people just want to watch the world burn. Well, there we, there we are. Well. Thank you, uh, thank you, uh, Alfred. <laughs> well, that... Look, uh, so much y'all put down there. Let me see if I can make three points. There was a very prominent American political scientist named Richard Hofstadter who we supposedly held up as a beacon uh, after World War II, is said consensus politics, right? America is the site of consensus politics. That's been completely shredded now. So why is that? First is, just follow up on what Adam said, let's acknowledge what Trump did. Trump simply came out and he went unfiltered and he simply threw it out to people and he simply said, this judge is against me because he's a New Mexican, even though that judge wasn't a Mexican born in Indiana, but people who reacted viscerally and said, oh, yeah, that's terrible, yeah, and you can try to dissect why they did that. Trump went after a soldier who died in Iraq because his parents dared to talk about sacrificing for America, and those parents happened to be Muslim, and Trump went after them as being deceivers and liars, and people, oh, yeah, possibly. Trump went after Hillary as that nasty woman, but he went after other women as well for being unfit, whether they be news commentators or, as we found out in the past, beauty pageant contestants. And people said, yeah, yeah, maybe he's got a point. Don't, you know, that's a positive, that's a, I use positive in quotes here. People were basically, they, he was saying things that they wanted to have affirmed. Secondly, though, Adam's out right as well. It's not just that, but there are many people who just simply hated Hillary Clinton so much. And here I speak from experience, very close experience with a divided family in which some family in my family are warning about Trump, but others hate Hillary so much. They cannot stand the idea that anyone would say anything that says Trump should not have been elected. And then third, it's a new world regarding the way these messages get out. Donald Trump was able to hold the low ground, if this makes sense, day after day after day, because he could go on Twitter and bang out 140 characters and the American media would follow the lead. It used to be that the American media would have press handouts for the various campaigns. They might judge where they wanted to cover the story, et cetera. They simply waited for Trump to tweet and off they went on cycle. And while he could continue to do that, the media were chasing him and chasing their tails. And for all the hard work that was being done by the New York Times or Washington Post to expose the fact that 
financially, let's say he is suspect. Mm-hmm. Let's say for all the stories that tried to expose uh, the fact that in terms of foreign policy issues and domestic policy issues, he is uh, not only suspect, but probably, as Adam said, unfit. Didn't matter. As long as he could hold the news cycle, and don't forget the email story in the last two weeks of the campaign, Hillary's email story, which everybody basically chased, then he benefits. That's, a to- that's the toxic combination for me that led to the victory. Hmm. I mean, he see- I think I-, I would be entirely wrong, I think, to reach for the email story or even FBI Director Comey's ham-fisted thrusting of it back into the debate as, as, as the single thing that turned the election uh, at the very end. Uh, not, if, not, if, no, no, I'm not saying you're doing that. But not I'm, turning, I'm, no. Right, but I'm, I'm not saying you're doing that, no. but I'm saying hypothetically, yeah, okay. if the Clinton camp wanted to grab hold of that and say that's what turned it, no. I think that is incorrect. But I do think the email issue is important in this way. It is the latest installment of a story about Hillary Clinton that is negative, that when you look into the details of it, turns out to be about not that much at all. And certainly, even if one accepts some level of misjudgment, not even, you know, never mind, not in the same ballpark, not even the same sport as the kind of things that Donald Trump has been found responsible for doing. And yet, a huge proportion of the electorate, even those who do not like Donald Trump very much at all, this election campaign, which went on for a couple of years with endless coverage, basically boiled down in their minds to the political system's broken. These two people are both terrible. They're as bad as each other. The hell with all of them. Um, so, you know, you have someone who uh, is a, a, a misogynist, a racist, a fraudster, uh, quite possibly, uh, because there are court cases upcoming about about that, who has been uh, entirely opaque about his finances, who has used uh, uh, rhetoric of a kind that's you know hasn't polluted American politics for a long time. And compared to that, you have you know a capable professional who is somewhat aloof in her personal manner and who has been on the periphery of a large number of investigations, none of which have gone anywhere about wrongdoing. And those two things have ended up being equivalent in, in people's minds. So the question is, whose fault is it that, that someone who basically, whether or not one finds her charismatic, has never been shown to have done anything really wrong, is on a par in the public mind with someone who has done so much wrong? Is that the media's fault for misreporting? Is it social media's fault for circulating so much stuff that's just straight up untrue? Is it the public's fault for having a wide open brain into which these things that are untrue simply seems to flow and then stay? Um, Is it elite's fault for being so snotty about the fact that the general public is willing to believe stuff that's flat out wrong without looking into it? Uh, Where does the blame lie for what I think has been one of the signature problems with this campaign, the monstrous false equivalency, if not in elite media coverage, but in the general population's mind between these candidates' flaws? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with all of that. I think this, this false equivalence between, between the two candidates, Clinton is an averagely bad politician. Trump is, is much, much worse than that as a, as a candidate. But I don't think it would be reasonable to put no blame at all on Clinton 
her campaign and the Democrats more generally. So Clinton was offering nothing, right? Uh, you know, it, you, one way of reading this election is that people who offered something beat the people who offered nothing. The people who had a cause beat the people who, who had no cause. So the message, in as far as the Clinton campaign had a message, it was vote for Donald Trump and he'll destroy everything. The problem was that was also the message of the Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. So they had no, no positive offer, um, you know, uh, no change being offered, no cause. On top of that, you know, it looks like, and there will be post-mortem about this, that the campaign was seriously mismanaged, that their attentions were not focused, or they didn't see this uh, Rust Belt um, uh, issue coming and lost states that they thought were in the bag, mm-hmm. uh, possibly through to in, uh, inadequate attention to those states. Okay, thinking that the state the election was going to be won in traditional swing states when it wasn't. Um, so that's the argument that Clinton has, has to bear some blame, personally, and the wider campaign and the Democrats generally. Okay, no cause, no offer. Now, the or one of many caveats you can put to that is that Clinton was nominated on the basis, on the expectation that she was going to face a mainstream Republican, who she would have probably beat. I think that's, you know, you if, if you had a, a Republican who's also offering basically the status quo, like a Jeb Bush or a, a Marco Rubio, the cut taxes, free trade, yeah. conservative manifesto. I, I don't, I don't see Clinton losing that. Um, and then, you know, the other thing, I don't know uh, how you'd feel about this either, but I think it's at least plausible that any man with all the negatives that Clinton has against her name would also have won that election. The, the gender factor is, is can't be dismissed. Yeah, I mean, I, I find that I find that enormously believable. I mean, the one thing I would say, and you know, I think this campaign is probably going like, to conclude with me having some kind of reputation for being soft on Hillary Clinton. Uh, but I feel like she's about to go down so badly, at least in immediate term history, that I do want to defend her on occasion. Um, Certainly, the strategic errors about where this campaign uh, pitched their message and campaigned will will be deliberately gone over with a fine tooth comb. But on the idea that she didn't offer anything, the policy proposals of her campaign have been substantial. You know, in areas like childcare, in areas like education, in areas like the environment, in areas like what one does about a changing economy due to technological advance and all of these kind of things. And she's been talking about that every day. It's received almost no coverage in the reportage of the campaign. There was a statistic that said something like of the main networks news programs uh, this year, it was, I think, 30, how was Scott? 36 minutes. 36 minutes. On the evening in newscast. total, on the evening newscast, was yeah. devoted to questions of policy. So, okay, first of all, to the extent that uh, to the extent that we have a problem that can be pinned to the door of the Hillary Clinton campaign, it's about a failure to break through modern media conditions with the message that their policy might have allowed them to to, to put together. But secondly, if one does look at the substance of the policy, where 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 one could legitimately maybe say she didn't offer anything. She didn't offer anything to a particular part of the population, which is to say if you are uh, working class, that is to say working and earning, not poor, but also not rich, living in somewhere like the Midwest, probably not in a big city, probably in a rural area. What they uh, call the middle class. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, you are concerned about your region. You're concerned about your kids. You are almost certainly white, and you are 
uh, disturbed and destabilized by the change that's been going on in terms of relations between the races, in terms of relations between the, the sexes. And you are especially disturbed by the way Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama have explicitly talked about concepts like structural racism, for example. That's not something any presidential candidate I've ever heard has ever said as words before, and Hillary Clinton did. And it is that particular group of people who, A, didn't like her, her apparently not only ignoring their fears about that, but actively being on the other side of their anxiety about cultural change, but also who feel they're on a downward sl slope economically, and she does not care about them. She cares about uh, minorities. She cares about the unemployed. She cares about the poor. She cares about people who uh, uh, have all sorts of what they would regard as social deviancies, but she doesn't care about them. And what Donald Trump basically came along and said is, not only do I care about you, but this is your country. Yeah. And uh, it is an outrage that these people, these people who are not us, are purporting to represent this country while delivering the benefits of it to these people like themselves who are also not the real people of this country. And it is the failure to speak to that group of people that they're the people she didn't offer anything to, and they seem to be the ones who've swung one way to another in the course of this election. And I think that's, it's not unique to America. That's globally the problem for the, the centre-left, social democrats, whatever you want to call them, is, is exactly that, coming to terms with that, and they're facing it, that, that, exactly the same challenge. Hmm. All of those things that you've just said, you could take and equally apply to the, the Labour Party. That's exactly the problem that they face. And the fact that they're led by a candidate who, whether, whether or not one believes it's factually based or rational, the electorate has taken against and will almost certainly not be convinced to reconsider. Well, he's the cultural elite made flesh. He's, he's exactly what people have in mind when they think political correctness has gone mad. This is the, the, the difficulty that the UK Labour Party faces, is that they think they've got an anti-elite leader. They haven't. They've got the figurehead of the cultural elite. Mm. They've got exactly what's in people's heads when they think you can't put an England flag up on your house. Mm. They're picturing Jeremy Corbyn's face or Diane Abbott's yeah. face or Shami Chakrabarti's face. And a bit like Hillary Clinton, you can produce binders of policy that you can argue on concrete rational grounds will do more to advance the economic circumstances of the working and non-working poor and be wholly correct about that. But if people have a strong sense that you are culturally alien, then uh, you know, they, they will not go with it. And that's what brings us, I suppose, to like, the counterfactual in this situation, which is if Hillary Clinton had not got the... Because as soon as this result came through, you know, okay, first of all, there was the exultant uh, Republican right and the you know, somewhat more restrainedly exultant uh, Republican moderates because they don't probably want to spend the next four years the way they love to spend them. But also immediately from the left, there was a wave of people uh, saying this is the left's fault because they refused to appoint uh, a, a genuine representative of change and the economically downtrodden as their avatar for this election. They sent up the face of the liberal metropolitan city-dwelling, uh, snotty, over-educated female establishment as the representative of the party. If they'd gone with Bernie Sanders or somebody like Bernie Sanders, they would have won this election. How plausible do we find that? Scott? You were a Sanders guy during the primaries. Oh. Is your immediate response to this, well, uh, 
God damn you, Democratic establishment and Hillary Clinton for uh, standing in the way of what would have been a successful Sanders it, campaign. It's actually, let me get, come at it from a slightly different direction, because it's not all just about this campaign. It's about the campaign to come and where we go. And what bothered me about the Democratic primaries and the way that it was stacked with the superdelegates is that by really setting it up so Clinton should be anointed, you know, when the unexpected came up that Sanders decided to run with only a handful of reporters there to listen to him, he injected issues into the campaign. But the Democratic Party had set up the process. We don't want to talk about issues here, folks. Let's keep this all basically all behind Hillary and off we go. Well, what did that mean? Well, some of the issues that Sanders was raising were, of course, the questions about whether the American economic system was providing fairness. Uh, forget, you know, white, black, whatever, to all people. He was raising questions about the banking system, the finance system, the questions about manufacturing. He was raising issues about not just do we reform Obamacare, but what kind of health care system do we want? What kind of education system do we want? Now, whether he would have expressed that well enough to win the election, whether he would have escaped the socialist tag, which is what the Republicans would have put on him, mm -hmm. oh, it's the evil you know, pseudo-communist, because that's what a socialist is, right? I don't know, but I do think that the failure to open out to issues, say that a Bernie Sanders presented, or let's say hypothetically Elizabeth Warren, who I think would have run this year had Hillary not been in line to it, I think it meant that the Democratic Party, despite the fact that Clinton had all these policy documents he talked about, but it looked to be a party which wasn't actually opening itself out to engage. Mm -hmm. Um and I think that's something I raise because this is not, by the way, we'll talk about the presidential election, which we focused on. It's something that is an issue down at the Senate elections, the House elections, and, of course, at local and state governments, that where you had candidates who did try to engage with local issues, whether they were Democrat or Republican, they tended to have a great deal of success. So not would Bernie have won, but if there had been a more open, engaging process, would that have produced a candidate that would have defeated Trump? Mm -hmm. On Sanders, I mean, I'm not qualified really to say uh, whether he would plausibly have won a primary contest. I will leave that to you as the experts. My feeling is that Sanders probably would not have won. That's just my instinct. I, but I think there's a counter-argument to that. So uh, the, the no case, I think, is I don't think Sanders gets you anyone who voted Trump. Um, I think if you look at all the hardcore Trump supporters and that whole wider Tea Party section of the, of the Republicans emerged basically as an anti-Obama movement in opposition to his supposed socialism. I don't think they turn around and vote for a Jewish... A guy who actually calls himself a socialist. ...self-described socialist, who's pro-immigration and pro-welfare. I don't think he gets you those votes. I think on top of that, I don't think you get much for being the second most anti-system candidate. So however much... Um, of an outsider, Sanders is. Trump is more of an outsider. However much of a non-politician, Sanders is. Trump is more of a non-politician. However much change, Sanders is promising. Trump is promising more. So if you do want to just burn everything down, why have this sort of hmm. burn it down light version of that? Third, uh, my understanding, and I'm prepared to be corrected again by the experts on this, is that Sanders is not uh, or was not as strong with uh, minority voters as Clinton. 
Mm-hmm. So while, you know, again, they're probably not that likely to, to turn out for Trump, they might stay at home. And fourth, I think Sanders would do would have done worse in debates against Trump. Not that that seems to have been that decisive because Clinton won the floor with him in the debates anyway. The maybe argument of, you know, could Bernie Sanders have won, would, you would have to say, I think, that it's not about getting the Trump voters, it's about uh, a claim that Sanders gives you everything good about Clinton with no downside. So you don't need the Trump demographic to win, you just need the Rust Belt to stay blue uh, and to hold, and that Sanders would, would give you that. That was, is the claim, I suppose. So you do just enough there to nick the result. Um, and again, I'm prepared to be corrected on this, but my understanding of what happened in Michigan is that um, Stein polled at 1.1%, which was bigger than the margin of victory for this Trump. the Green Party So candidate. if you can assume that those votes, and this is always a bit like assuming you win your games in hand, but yeah. it's not completely implausible to say that those votes might have gone to Sanders. And then he holds yeah. uh, Michigan and, you know, the picture looks a bit different. Yeah. Maybe Wisconsin too. I mean, one more, one more question then, because we, we, we're well, going to go... Well, let okay. me just come back on there. I mean, look, because it, those are all good points. I mean, without going into great detail, I think Sanders would have beaten Trump. I think we can come back on it, I think. But I wanted to put the wider issue here. With a Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren in it, it's, not, it's a question of mobilizing and motivating, which is what Obama did in 2008. And I, I don't see Sanders as a burn-it-down politician. What I see Sanders was was actually someone who was trying to get people enthused and say, look... We can change this system for the better in a positive way, not in a Trumpian way. And if you look at those pro- rallies, I won't even call them protests, those rallies that are going on now in the streets, they're not just about no to Trump. They're about, look, we want to have a better way. And precisely those types of people, where I think the future lies, would have, I think, been motivated. But it's done. It is now done. The question is, where do we go next? Whether it's, you know, and I think we're therefore beyond Bernie, beyond Hillary, uh, with an answer to that. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is what I, I wanted to, to come to, right? So, you know, we can already tell both on left and right where this conversation is going, at least, or at least the preponderance of it socially, right? We've got a bunch of people, white, uh, working, not rich, but not poor, who have flipped from Democrats to Republicans in this cycle, and the two sides have different interpretation about what the best way to read this is. One side wants to say, oh, these people are suffering economically. If only the Democratic Party had a message for those people, then they would all still be with the Democrats. Um, and it's an outrage to suggest they're motivated by racial grievance. And there's another side that's saying, racists, sexists, I can't believe that America is like this. I am in, I'm ashamed to be American. Uh, I will never feel the same about my country again, yada, yada, yada. In the middle, it seems that there is a truth, right, which is that we have people who, like I said before, are not the most disadvantaged in society, but who remember within their own and their parents' lifetimes a period when if you were non-college educated and worked in manufacturing and were white, let's not forget that part, uh, you could be assured a certain standard of living and a certain social status and a certain kind of respect in your interactions with with the rest of society, all of which has kind of slipped away as they see it. 
And you could expect a certain kind of set of norms about what's right and what's wrong and what uh, marriage is and what race relations are that were stable and that suited you. And all of that has, has been taken away. And the Democratic Party now needs to find some way of communicating with those people in such a way as to get them back on board. Now, you know, the two ways that don't seem very plausible to me are, one, to assume that they're all in the grip of false consciousness, that all they care about is economics, and that if you just read Das Kapital to them or some, like, uh, translated version uh, for, the, for the common man, they will all turn around uh, and, uh, uh, you know, be with you. That does not seem particularly believable. The alternative is to allow this reactionary upsurge to define the terms of the whole discourse and start trying to lead the Democratic Party away from all of the progressive agenda that's taken up, taken place over the last eight years and start saying, how do we signal to these people that we actually don't want to go that far in terms of questioning white supremacy for want of, you know, that's not the term they would ever use, but, you know, a hierarchical understanding of society that places white men uh, in a kind of tacit position of assumed comfort relative to others economically and socially? How do we signal that actually we're not going to destabilize that so much, that we still are the party of that? And that version of strategy just seems to me, given that the Democrats have put together this very large coalition, larger in the popular vote than the Republican one, and given that demographically minorities are not getting any smaller, and given that women are such a huge part of the electorate, and given that the direction of travel on social issues would seem to be towards liberalism or was up until this point, um, and given that manufacturing jobs, especially well-paid ones, ain't coming back anytime soon, uh, and given that in any case it wasn't the fact that they were manufacturing, but it was unionization that made those jobs well-paid and unionization that could make other kinds of jobs well-paid now, you know, is it, you know, which, which way should the Democratic Party uh, go about attempting to get these people back on board without assuming that they're in a state of misunderstanding about their own feelings, but also without giving in to what is essentially a reactionary agenda and therefore probably losing again, but doing it with the worse aftertaste of having mortgaged their principles on the way? Cheers, Scott. <laughs> Hand me that one. Um, well, I, I think the... First thing that uh, the whole mainstream of politics has got to do is to remember some of the arguments about why we wanted this stuff in the first place. So uh, I was reading something over the weekend, many things on this, and some this phrase caught my eye that we've forgotten how radical liberal democracy is. We've forgotten that it actually is something that has to be argued for and mm -hmm. defended because there has been a, 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 an uh, unchallenged fairly cosy consensus on those ideas for a long time. And we haven't had to defend these things. So, you know, again, I'm look, looking at this from a British perspective. Has it really been explained to people why you need immigration to go up in, in any, you know, uh, understandable, comprehensible way? OK, were the benefits of the EU ever explained to people? No. For 20 years, no one had a good word to say about the EU. It was a convenient scapegoat for everybody, not just the people who think they're on the left, but everybody within the mainstream going through to the Conservative Party, Liberal, Conservatives, and, and, and all the way through. So I think some of those arguments have to be revived and, uh, you know, arguments about feminism, because those people are not wrong about feminism, and gender equality and racial equality, but 
they've forgotten how to make the arguments in a way that's actually accessible and chimes with people's lived experience. This is the thing we're always talking about, to do politics in the vernacular rather than assume that you've got a lock on uh, what's right and anybody who uh, presents any counter-argument can be shut down by being described as a, as a racist. I think the, the, the wrong reaction, which I think I, I, I sense is in the air as well, is, well... Uh, we have to respond to the fact that some people are racist and adjust our positions accordingly. Uh, and we don't need to show any uh, uh, leadership or to revive any of those arguments. What we believe is correct and we don't have to argue for it. It's become very lazy, very complacent. And uh, the first step is to remember why we wanted those things in the first place. Mm. I, I don't want to play in either of your ballparks, Adam. I don't want to play on either of them because they divide up voters and say, let's look at whites or let's look at African-Americans or let's look at working class or let's look at middle class. This is a personal reaction, by the way, not a political strategist reaction. Yeah. Well, I mean, those were both strategies that I don't think are a good idea. Well, that's that's, that's a personal reaction. It's time to talk about values. And Mark alluded to it. And let's just be point blank about it. Um, it is time to talk about standards of decency. Not, you know, we'll leave aside Trump's decency. Decency for all of us. It's time to talk about standards of justice for all of us. It's time to talk about standards of rights for all of us and to not play it by dividing up into blocks of people. Because when you divide up into blocks of people, you play into their hands. Those who want to benefit from a politics of division and insecurity. So how do you do it? Well, from adversity comes opportunity. When um, President-elect Trump, God, it's so hard saying those words. When President-elect Trump says... Got some mouthwash on the side of the, side of the studio for your use. You need it. Better be strong. When President-elect Trump says we're going to deport 2 million to 3 million people soon, then you stand against it. You stand against it now, you stand against it firmly, and you do not waver in that. When President-elect Trump says, I'm going to appoint a Supreme Court justice on the basis that that justice will ensure that we overturn Roe versus Wade and therefore a woman's right to choose over her own body, you stand against that firmly. If a President Trump puts in loyalty tests or vetting for any particular group, you stand against it. You do not waver. If a President Trump bases his entire foreign policy on embracing Vladimir Putin, the Russian leader, because he wants to be like Vladimir Putin, you stand against that on the values of what it means to have a just and responsible policy. You do not waver and you organize I'm going to leave, you know, if the Democratic Party wants to, to, to navel-gaze over this type, that's fine, and they will. But for me, this is now beyond the Democratic Party. To put it bluntly to you, social media turned this campaign in a certain way because a very divisive, hate-filled man learned how to use it. And it is now time that we take that tool as well to connect ourselves and to really mean what we say when we talk about community. For me, that's the way forward. Mm-hmm. 
Right, I think we've we've hit the wall, as it were. We, we didn't really manage to get around, because time is tight, to discussing the policy implications, but I suspect we have four years to do that. So we'll return in the near future to discuss what President Trump may or may not actually do. We'll also be gathering, depending on when this podcast is out, it may still be valuable information to everybody, uh, for a, a post-US election interpretation uh, event here at the Vaughan Jeffries Lecture Theatre uh, at a three o'clock in the afternoon on Wednesday. So you can hear some of these same opinions probably expressed live uh, there. I think we've set the worlds to rights. Thank you very much. The worlds to rights. We've multiplied the number of worlds that are uh, available in our conclusion, apparently. Thank it's you very Trump much. president in the other one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the timelines are slow. We have a sliding doors situation here where, where Hillary Clinton is the president yeah. in one. Uh, James Comey did not didn't send that letter to Congress in two different worlds. And we have different presidents and possibly nuclear apocalypse or not in, in each one. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others discover the pod. You can also come and like us on our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Paul Worldview, where you can see uh, links to the pod and articles, etc. Recommend us and share us on, uh, on, on uh, social media, which is always very welcome and helps other people find us. Our participants today have been Scott Lucas. Where can they find you? Oh, my goodness. Well, since I've been talking about social media, here's the full panoply. It's Scott Lucas on Facebook. It is Scott Lucas underscore EA on Twitter. Or follow the hashtag Dawn is Coming. Or it is EA Worldview, eaworldview.com, which is a news and analysis site not only about the United States, but about a few other parts of the world as well. I think that's the first time you've ever given a Facebook uh, push for your social media. Am I, am I converting you to, uh, to consider it a legitimate platform for this activity? Honestly, the, the, the outcome has converted me. I tended to work off of Twitter because I said, well, this is where I get my information, disseminate it. But it is now networking and communication that's essential, and Facebook offers the opportunity for us to use that platform to its full advantage. Mark? I am on Twitter at Mark R. Goodwin. Mm-hmm. And I am Adam Quinn. I'm Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook, uh, where you can find me also on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, but I use Facebook far more. I've been pushing it on Scott for a while, and I would push it on all of you as a superior platform, people. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We hope you will be too. Bye. Bye. Bye.